0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Jam, a weekly podcast dedicated to analysing the week's news and top topics through a political science lens. I'm Michael, joined as voice by Jeevan. Jeev, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Michael. I'm glad to say I'm getting a lot more sleep now that American politics has calmed down a little bit and I'm feeling like well-rested <laughs> and ready to go. How about you, buddy?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good ahead of the first week of teaching for... For me, it's going to be a busy, busy semester, another semester of teaching online, but you're going to embrace it and looking forward to the challenges ahead. And we are delighted to be joined on a podcast today by a special guest. We are joined by Professor Rosie Campbell. Rosie is a professor of politics and the director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Rosie, how are you today?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. And we are joined by Rosie today to discuss COVID-19 and gender inequality. And more specifically, we're going to focus on the role COVID-19 has played in exacerbating gender inequalities, the role gender equality should play in the policy response to COVID-19, and finally, why women-led countries have managed the pandemic so well. So, Rosie, I guess a nice place to start might be casting our minds back to simpler times before the outbreak of COVID-19. How would you assess assessed gender equality in the UK prior to the pandemic? And what does the picture look like now?
2: I think one of the things that it's easy sometimes to forget is what rapid progress we've had in terms of gender equality in the UK. You know, my mum my did chemistry at university and a few years before she did that, there was a cap on the proportion of the number of proportion of women who could study chemistry. I think it was something like five percent because it was considered a waste of money to educate women in an expensive subject like the sciences. Um, so, you know, we've had seen such rapid change in our lifetimes to the point now that actually we've got more women in university than men, which isn't a target or a goal of mine. I would much prefer to see 50-50. Um, but we have seen a lot of progress towards gender equality, but also some stubborn areas where progress was moving much more slowly. And if you look at the upper echelons of a lot of professions, they were still very heavily male dominated and some industries more so than others. Um, but, you know, we were making progress and sometimes it feels like two steps forward, one step back. I think um, one of the great concerns about COVID-19 is that although the um, health outcomes sometimes are worse for men, you know, men are more likely to um, unfortunately be among the fatalities from the disease. In terms of the um, social economic outcomes, women have been hit harder than men on average. So women have been more likely to lose their jobs. Um, and the kind of partly because of the kind of industries women are more likely to work in, retail, hospitality has been hit harder. But also because women are more likely to be in low-paid, insecure work, which has been hit harder. And then, of course, there's the impact of um, the lack of childcare during the first and the third lockdown, and how women are more likely to do that childcare, and therefore in more precarious position in the labour market. So it's a real danger that we're going to go backwards rather than forwards but there are also some opportunities and perhaps we could come to those in a, little, a little later on.
1: I think that's a really a really great point, Rosie. And I think that one of the really interesting things is about the intersection between kind of pre-COVID gender inequalities and COVID gender inequalities themselves. So if there was less gender inequality before the pandemic, then the impact we would also expect to be less unequal. It's because women's occupational choices were limited by gender inequalities prior to the pandemic women are more likely to take on part-time work and experience a loss of earnings after childcare and how we see that rebound onto uh, the inequalities during the pandemic as well. So I know that I've heard research that the gender pay gap starts to open after the birth of the first child and I can see how then when you're both working at home and the decisions one of you has to do childcare, I can see how that decision ends up then further negatively impacting women in part because households say, well, we're going to prioritise the higher earning partner in this situation. Does that accord with your understanding of where, or some of the the ways in which the interaction between kind of the pre and post COVID worlds?
2: I mean, that's definitely some of it. You know that all inequalities, unfortunately, have been exacerbated by this crisis. So, um, men and women who um, were in more vulnerable financial predicaments were more vulnerable to the crisis. People who live in high density. Um, housing, insecure work—you um, know—have have been more fit, more vulnerable as well to the disease itself. Um, so yes, the existing inequalities are absolutely crucial. And you're right that there are a lot of incremental decisions along the way that explain some of the gender pay gap. But there are also a lot of cultural and social factors. For example, in in households where actually the if it's a heterosexual couple the woman earns more money than the men, actually, she often still does more of the childcare. So it's not simply a, a numeric decision, although that's a big factor, it's also cultural expectations around um, around what, what a woman's role is. Um, and we've seen that, you know, a massive transition to the expectation that women will be in the workplace, unfortunately not such um, a redistribution of unpaid work in the home. And suddenly when we've all found out, well, many of us, those of us lucky enough to be able to work at home have found ourselves at home so much. Actually, to some extent, that's exacerbated those inequalities. But I'm not the most concerned about, um, there will be a knock-on effect on people in professions and it will affect, unless we remedy it, progression to leadership positions. But I'm particularly concerned about people who might find themselves um, locked out of the employment market in future altogether. So people who were you hear horror stories of women who were previously working in call centres sent home with a laptop and two toddlers and told to carry on answering calls at the same rates as they were doing before. Well, it's impossible. And how do you sustain that? And how do you sustain the life um, choices you wanted for your family after this crisis? So I think there is going to be some really big challenges to face ahead.
0: Are we aware of any data kind of looking at the intersection or the interaction between race and gender here?
2: Um. Well, we are at a very top line level in that we know, for example, 70% of healthcare workers are women. And we know that there is a higher proportion of ethnic minority women working in healthcare than there are ethnic minority women working in other, um, you know, other employment areas. So we know that ethnic minority women from particular um, communities are more highly exposed to the virus. We know when you look at social care, for example, it's actually the same patterns exist. Um, And we also know there's an intersection between race, gender and economic poverty. So again, if we're going to try and find, if we were to identify the people who've been most vulnerable in this crisis, unfortunately, um, women from some ethnic minority communities will be very overrepresented in that. Um, What I think at this stage we don't have um, is more in-depth analysis rather than those top line figures. I think going forward, as we think about recovery from the crisis, keeping who has been most affected in mind and making sure that their voices are heard and included in policy plans for recovery is absolutely essential.
1: And Rosie, what about the distinction or the division between um, high and low income women? Because I think as well as having, so if we kind of think about, as you're saying, ethnic minority women being hardest hit, in one sense, I'd also expect low income women to be hardest hit and to be there to be a huge divide between the two, between those who, who can work from home and are also being hit with extra childcare, regardless of that, as well as those who, who can't work from home and are therefore having to go out in this pandemic, as well as trying to juggle childcare, for example. I'm thinking particularly at the moment of, you know, picking up that point you made earlier about like retail and well, especially the retail sector, I can imagine women being expected to go and work in retail and yet also having no childcare at home. How do you know how the division is working in terms of the impact between the two?
2: Um, well, I think sort of going back to this, this the first bit of your question about um, intersectionality, one of the reasons I'm being very cautious is obviously um, we've got a lot of different communities in the UK and inequalities intersect in complex ways. So, you know, I live in a, a mixed race family in a leafy Surrey suburb. And um, on a, a, you know, an ONS survey, my, my husband and my children would, would be vain. Um, but they are not being exposed to the virus at at a particularly high rate. And that's because they're living in a middle-class privileged area. But there's also another factor that we know that there are um, ethnic uh, minority disparities in terms of health outcomes, that some of that is to do with racial prejudice and how people are treated when they arrive in hospital. So trying to unpick these very complex effects is, is very difficult. And I don't want to try and say that I have any of the answers to that right now. My my approach is actually we just need to be really cognizant of these differences when we're doing the analysis and when we're thinking about how we build a road to recovery, so that we think about how these different factors intersect and and impact on people and make sure that we're bringing that to bear on our analysis. Then your point about well we know women have been losing their jobs disproportionately and that's because of the points that you make um, that it's you cannot be as flexible um, if you suddenly have childcare responsibilities you weren't anticipating and one of i suppose when i said there are causes potentially for optimism if we can harness them on the way out from this crisis one of them is in in i really feel that the experiences have been divided between those who can work from home and those who can't and there's there's some overlap we talked about the um call center work which you perhaps can do from home but actually it's not flexible about how and when and what you do it um but you know if you broadly imagine these two categories Those people who have to physically go out to work, well, a lot of women are key workers. A lot of women work in the NHS. They will have been going to work, and there will have been an increasingly large number of men who've had to do the childcare who didn't do it before because their partner's a key worker. And there might be lessons to learn from that. There might be families who share things in different ways. There might be policy learnings. That could be really optimistic. That could be something positive. The other thing is, at the beginning of the crisis... Some of our leaders didn't realize that childcare is critical infrastructure. Thought you could just close class childcare. They didn't realize the economy would crash because we now depend on people who are carers to work. Um, so, again, if we can understand childcare is as important as all the other aspects of our infrastructure, that could be positive. And then there's the kind of more privileged, mostly part of the population you can work from home. I um, privilege more if there's some flexibility about the timings when you can do that. Um, and there could be lessons learned there about some of the jobs that I described before where women have really struggled to get through this glass ceiling. You think about the higher levels of law or banking or whatever, um, and, and actually academia. When there's a very high culture of presenteeism and of um, um, a, a kind of cult of overworking, people with childcare responsibilities tend to fall backwards and that affects men and women. But women more than men because women more often take on those responsibilities. We've now shown and it proved with various bits of research around this crisis that we can be as effective at some bits of work especially concentrated work from home as in the office and I think that's a real opportunity for greater flexibility as long as we harness that way there's a real risk it'll just become an always-on culture that you should always be responsive but there are real opportunities coming out of this if we can learn from them. That's a long-winded response to your question.
0: I think it was a really good response, Rosie, and I guess you've touched on in your answer there about the recovery from COVID nineteen, and that is obviously where the attention will now will now lie, and a lot of the focus will be on, on the on the recovery. and I think Melinda Gates was was quoted as saying, "We get recovery, if we gets equality." What role should gender equality play in response to COVID nineteen? Should it be something essential? I know in in Hawaii, for example, they've spoken about a feminist recovery plan, and the idea that gender equality is going to be centered in their in their COVID nineteen response strategy. Is that something you'd like to see in the UK as well, maybe a, a, a gendered approach to the COVID-19 response strategy?
2: I really hope so, because I think there was a failure at the outset to understand the gendered nature of the impact. Um, and, for example, I can completely understand it, but the um, gender pay gap reporting regime was postponed during the crisis. Now, that are totally understandable. Businesses were under a lot of pressure, but the signal it sends is that this is a nice to have rather than an essential. And actually... What we've seen is that our economy depends upon women's talent and women's productivity in the workplace and so recovery also is going to require that we make best use of that talent and that we give people opportunities to develop themselves and enhance their opportunities for their family um families and i really hope that we can get that message through that actually if you look around the world if you look at the countries that grow fastest they actually have um, greater gender equality, to go backwards in this way will not be an economic saving. Um, So, yes, I think it should be absolutely central, whether it will be, is an interesting question.
1: I do do feel the same way about gender inequality this pandemic as I do about income inequality in many respects, which is the economic forces are pulling us in one direction, which is towards greater inequality, but the political and perhaps sociological forces are pulling pulling us into another to help us build a better world afterwards. So I think after World War One, women getting the vote because they're a huge part of the war effort. In World War Two, it led to the welfare state as everyone had to contribute to win that war. And now in COVID nineteen, when we know that women are bearing the brunt of this pandemic, we can also turn around and say actually there has to be some recompense and also understanding of the contribution that women are making. That perhaps we haven't been aware of it before so I think as you would said on the work side hopefully companies being a bit more open to flexible working on the home production side as well perhaps being aware of how much work child care actually is in the home and for like men to be aware of that and on the policy side you know the need for universal high quality child care that helps women fundamentally make choices about occupations that aren't always there to them as well as the cultural side on top of it as well And there are other things around universal credit and statutory sick pay. I think 70% of women are ineligible for statutory sick pay. And on universal credit, we know how low that is as well. And fundamentally, there is no conceptual difference between having low pay or being unemployed prior to the pandemic or being sick prior to the pandemic and being sick or losing your job because of COVID. Like at the end of it all, you have still lost your income or you are still unable to work because you're sick. Uh, at least in that sense, i'm I am hopeful that the future will be better than the one we had prior to the pandemic, even if it's a little bit more uh, a bumpy road to get there.
2: yeah, I kind of take issue that the economics are leading us anywhere. I think um that's a kind of narrative that it's a political narrative to say well this is this is this is an economic imperative, you know, so the economic imperative to have the most flexible possible labor force. Um, and minimum protection for employees um, or virtually actually calling hardly anyone an employee. You know, you're all self-employed with no rights whatsoever. That's a political choice. It's nothing to do with economics. I mean, um, the people who hire people will generally want to make a profit and try and make the restraints around that minimum. And it's a political decision around where you set the bar. And I think we've moved, as you rightly said, in the period since the 1970s Further and further towards a laissez-faire approach um, with a minimum welfare safety net. And as was always the case, an expectation that a lot of the caring that human beings need to be productive individuals is done for free um, within the family um, without actually actually anymore having the physical time and space to do that. And I think there's one narrative that is made that the, the First World War gave women the vote, the Second World War gave us the welfare state that's not what happened is it i mean what happened is that people made demands that were finally heard and the campaign towards suffrage before the first world war had built a lot of momentum and it was harder after the first world war to keep resisting that campaign so it's the political activism of people who were demanding change that found a window of opportunity and exactly the same in the second world war you know the labor movement had been around you know for some time before then and it was the, the political activity demanding change that, that led to the election of a landslide Labour government and the formation of the welfare state. It wasn't inevitable. It was it was, it was was absolutely political action. And so likewise, after this crisis, we will only see progress if we get ourselves together and demand it. Um, and I do think in the UK there are opportunities and that we have a Conservative government elected on a mandate of this levelling up agenda. And we have a real reason to reduce inequality and level up. And so there is the opportunity to galvanise around that, but it won't happen without an enormous lot of political energy.
1: I, w- I would, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, when I said with the economic forces, the divide I'm thinking about is the the stay at home versus those who can't stay at home. So it's those who are in the in the close contact service sector who have seen the, the brunt of of this divide, as you say, between those of us who are kind of the stay at home and go at work places. And it has been incredibly interesting to see, I think, as you say, both the social movements within those world wars and hopefully now. Has there been a sense in which, do we feel like there's a sense in which those social movements have started to gain momentum or will start to continue to gain momentum after this crisis? And is that something that those movements are prepared for to kind of push for it? Because I feel like I feel like the proposition has been accepted. I'm also hoping that's also gonna be like a push once we kind of, once the dust has settled or even as we're going forward. Is that something that's happening at the moment?
2: I don't know if there's a recognition widely held of the gender dimensions of it. And I, I don't know whether it necessarily matters in that we know women are more likely to be employed in the insecure low paid work that you described. So if we fix those problems, we will help a lot of women um but i do think there is a recognition in the country that job insecurity and a lack of um, benefits in work is escalating and i think one of the things that happens is once that starts reaching the middle classes then you tend to get a lot of a lot of very um, articulate vocal people getting their acts together on an issue and i think we're getting to the point now that actually lots of jobs can potentially be done in this very very i mean flexibility can be great if it means that you've got a secure contract and you can Um, negotiate with your employer how and when you work but if it means that the employer just is able to pick you up and drop you at will and you've got no predictability in your working hours and income that's a disaster and I think it's no longer the case that it's just going to be those people in the lowest paid jobs that are potentially offered those kinds of contracts and that's when we might actually see a real backlash against it I do hope so Um, I certainly think it's shocking that in a country as wealthy as this there are so many People living below the poverty line, unable to feed their families, and I think I would like to hope that you are right that the political will will be there to, to force change.
0: Rosie, you spoke a bit just uh, just earlier on about the, the Conservatives' Leveling Up agenda, and most political scientists research in representation and representation of the interests of marginalised groups like women and minorities would actually find that left-wing parties tend to be more conducive to the representation of his interests because of their emphasis on egalitarianism. So are you confident that moving forward as we sort of focus on the recovery from COVID-19, are you confident the Conservative governments are going to place this on the agenda, and focus on gender equality, and when it comes to the COVID-19 response?
2: I think my point is that there's a window of opportunity to do so. And if you think immediately after the Second World War, um, there was a period of relative consensus politics where both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party supported the NHS and the welfare state. And that was because there was such mass support for it inside uh, among the electorates. So I think um, this Conservative Party, more than any Conservative Party, uh, potentially, I mean, David Cameron was a, was a Liberal and so was Theresa May, but um, this is a very unusual mix of Conservative MPs. You've got Conservative MPs from very um, representing working-class Um, constituencies where uh, post-industrial traditional heartlands that they actually really have to think about, if they want to keep those votes they've got to think about some of the most transient economic problems in the UK Um, and so I think that does provide real opportunities and I'm not someone who... um, I I, I, I think that there can be a zeitgeist and, and you could potentially with a Conservative government um, lobby for change that could be successful, maybe not as radical as as some people would like, but perhaps moving in a direction of greater and a greater equality rather than inequality. And I think if we don't come out of this with um, a sense of what that looks like and a, and a demand for it, then that's going to be a real policy failure. And actually, you know, the Conservative Party, like the Labour Party, is a broad church, and there are lots of individuals within the Conservative Party who share an agenda about a certain kind of um, uh, what you might have called more patrician, one nation, conservative values that provides a safety net for individuals. So I do think there's real scope for activism that might make a difference
0: here. And Rosie, there are some data that, suggests that you know countries led by women have managed the pandemic better than countries led by men in terms of lower death rates and better economic performance. Is there something about female leaders that means that they are better at managing crises like this pandemic, or is it more complicated than this? So it's important to focus on traits shared by leaders that manage pandemic worlds well as opposed to gender, because I don't think it's a uniform way in the way women lead countries, but there are leadership styles that women tend to adopt. So women tend to adopt cooperative and inclusive leadership styles, and those leadership styles probably are more conducive to managing the pandemic. So Jacinda arden has been praised for adopting a collaborative approach. And listening to advice and showing a willingness to reach out to people. What's your thoughts Rosie?
2: Um, I agree with you it's traits it's not it's not it's not anything genetic but I think it's actually we tend to focus on the women leaders maybe because there's not very many of them there are 12 um, women leaders globally at the moment um, and many many more men and I think what's we really should notice about what's been going on in politics globally in in the last decade The rise of populism and how that's correlated often with a cult of hypermasculinity. And if you look at Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin, you know, the the, the leader with his shirt off riding horseback, you know, leading us into the future. um, Impervious to disease and illness and very, very hierarchical systems where it's very difficult to speak truth to power, where the strong man is supposed to come and save us all. That, that model of politics, which is incredibly active, activistic, you know, it, it's, um, it's, not a global, it's not how we understand modern democracy at all, which is a collective activity. That is a failed politics, and it's associated with a certain kind of, of hyper-masculine performance, really. It's, it's nothing to do with actual um, characteristics that are inhe- inherent within us. It's a decision to behave that way. And I think it's not a, it's not a, a performance women can very readily adopt. You can think of a few women politicians who are described almost in that strongman vein, perhaps Margaret Thatcher and Marine Le Pen. They don't really fall right into that category. I mean, particularly say Margaret Thatcher, she was a scientist in a crisis like this. She might portray herself as a strong leader, but she would have listened to the advice. And it's just a it, its a completely hopeless, failed politics. And we can see it at the time of this recording you know, it's just a, a few days after the, the the terrible scenes in Washington. Strongman politics is the simplest of politics. It's attractive to people sometimes in this complex, complex world. Maybe actually if we just get this bloke in, he'll fix things for us. That model of doing politics isn't available to women. We don't think women are competent to behave in that way. They have to behave in a more collective, empathetic way. But actually it's not one feminine way of doing politics. If you think about Jacinda Ardern and famously reading to the children, you can't really imagine Angela Merkel doing that. Angela Merkel has much more scientific history and background and way of doing things, but neither of them are, want to or are able to adopt this hyper-masculinity style. So that's what I think is going on. I think it's, it's, as you say, it's about traits and it's about culture.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, I guess for me, it's no coincidence that women leaders are, are, are leading countries that are typically viewed quite positively when it comes to gender equality. And what I actually think is that these leaders are a symptom of a country that's progressive in every sense of the word. So these countries are, tend to have more trust in scientific advice. There'll be a tied social contract between s- the states and citizens. And on the other hand, you have populist leaders, as you, as you mentioned, who have minimised the pandemic at times. They blamed others for it. So you look at Trump's framing of the viruses, China flu, and shown disdain for, for experts and scientific advice and machismo is placed over scientific truth.
2: Absolutely, i with you.
1: I also wonder about selection bias in that if you think that, well, women face discrimination, I would expect the women leaders to just be better, the ones who rise to the top, simply because they have a higher bar to clear just to get there. So they have to be not just as good as a, a man leader, but better, and I would expect that to, to play across. And it as I think like you say you know administrations end up reflecting the character of the principal, right and so the and a huge part of that is the process of decision making itself and so like you say when you you say rose you say like good leaders have a have a bad process of just I can overcome this because I'm going to do so with my force of will as opposed to a process that goes well let's have a collaborative discussion about what everyone can advise and make the decisions that we think is best as well as being able to learn from our mistakes. And I think, you know, the UK in particular, we have this kind of over-centralized process that at one point depended upon one advisor, uh, Dominic Cummings and one minister, Rishi Sunak, and countries that handled it badly have bad processes that don't listen to others. I think on the other side of it, those kind of qualities that we uh, associate rather with Jacinda Ardern are also ones we would say would also hold true for Barack Obama as well as probably Joe Biden as well. Like we wouldn't see them making the same mistakes. I think we've seen some of the other uh, masculine leaders make in this pandemic.
0: I think that's
2: right. But I also think the small n issue is a, is an issue because as you were talking, I was thinking, yes, um, you know, celebrating stupidity isn't something you normally, normally is um, something that a woman leader has as an option. Um, but actually, I mean, Sarah Palin was cut very much out of a, a similar mould in terms of her complete ignorance mm-hmm. about the world. Um, and for a certain section of the electorates in the US, that was very attractive. So I do think it's also that just, you know, if you've only got 12 women leading countries, you've got a much smaller pool to have a real maniac from within. But I I do agree with you, though, that we do know that women have to be better qualified to get into roles. So it's probably harder to be really, really, really stupid. Um, But I just want to point out it's possible.
0: Rosie, I guess the final point when speaking about women in response to COVID-19 is earlier on in the pandemic, there was a focus in some quarters on the absence of women from the response to COVID-19 in the UK. So the COVID-19 working group is comprised of men, and the daily parliamentary briefings were criticised for being dominated by men. With Priti Patel conspicuous in, in her absence from those daily briefings, is this important? So, is it a case that with women absent from the you know the COVID nineteen working group, with women not given these daily policy briefings, it does that mean that, that their interests are going to be absent from the agenda when it comes to COVID nineteen?
2: Absolutely, we know when um, when when groups and their, their voices are absent then they're not well represented. And you know the idea that others can speak for us just doesn't work that well. We, we, we tend to prioritise things that we've experienced ourselves, our lived experience, and we have to, we have to provide a platform for re- group representation in politics, I believe. And my sort of COD theory about this inside the current Conservative Party is that if you look at how um, Boris Johnson came to be leader, he Came to be leader on the back of his successful Brexit campaign. And if you look at who were supporters of a hard Brexit on the heart, you know, the highest, the hardest end of that, it's in the electorate, it's more often men, and inside the Conservative Party, it's more often men. So, in his immediate coterie, he had fewer women. And I'm afraid he just hasn't picking from a very good pool. It's the complete inverse of what we were describing before. I mean, Priti Patel is not the most talented um, politician in my view. I mean, she's really. Some of the, 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 some of the, I mean, some of the things that she's done over the last few years, I should, in my view, count her out of being in, um, being a minister. And yet there just aren't that many um, women in that immediate coterie to choose from. And what I do hope is that in the last year, Boris Johnson really has been criticised from within the Conservative Party for being, paying too much attention to his immediate close advisors who were very masculine blokes with a certain view of how you do politics, and that actually now he recognises, always being forced to recognise that that's not how you govern successfully. And I do hope that some of the really talented women within the Conservative Party, some of the fantastic Conservative women MPs get their chance to be much more involved in government and that we can see an improvement in government as a result of that.
0: F- fantastic. That feels like a, a good place to end. Do we have any concluding thoughts before, before we end?
2: No, yeah, Um concluding thoughts. I don't know. I'm not sure I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I guess it'll be a nice place to to end and and move on to Jam of the Week. So, Rosie, what is your Jam of the Week?
2: Well, I was thinking about it before um, we started recording. And I thought, I think given everything that's been going on lately, one thing that's really been in my mind is a a few years ago, I remember being really shocked and really worried when Trump was elected and and and. and as as the situation escalated, particularly when the um, children were separated from their families in the Mexican border. And I remember some colleagues um, thinking that people like myself were exaggerating and that Trump was no threat to democracy. And uh, I do hope that those individuals are taking a long, hard look at what they've said over the last few years. And the song I would recommend to anyone who's taken that view is the Manic Street Preachers if you tolerate this, your children will be next.
0: Mm. That is a fantastic choice. And I think a very apt one, given what we saw uh, last week in America, the, the horrible scenes in uh, in the capital. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rosie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and all the best.
2: So lovely to meet you both. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thanks. See ya.